0: History Nerds United. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Today we have investigative reporter and author, Catherine Corcoran, to talk about her brand new book, In the Mouth of the Wolf, A Murder, A Cover-Up, and The True Cost of Silencing the Press. It's a fantastic book, everyone. I read it and immediately reached out, hoping that she would come on, and she did. It was a great conversation, which means I'm going to stop talking and let's get to it. Katherine Corcoran. Here she is. Okay, Catherine Corcoran, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Kathy. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So we're going to talk your book, In the Mouth of the Wolf. I absolutely loved it, and I want to dive into it. But first, I would like to just talk about you a little bit. A lot of TVs and movies have told us what the life of a journalist, an investigative journalist is like. How much of it is realistic and how much of it is just kind of Hollywood mumbo jumbo?
1: I would say um, most portrayals of journalists in Hollywood I don't particularly like because they always show us doing something unethical or posing as someone else. Things we never do, posing as someone else. Getting into relationship with a source in exchange for information—all those kinds of things—never happen in all my in all my many decades and all the people I know. That's not how we do our jobs. There are some very good portrayals, of course, like Spotlight. Spotlight was a very good portrayal of what investigative reporters do, because it showed all. Um, what what we used to call the gumshoe work, that being out on the street, beating the pavement, knocking on doors, the strategy about how you find someone to talk to them and how you try to get them to talk to you. And all of that, I think, I think most recently the movie Spotlight really outlined that really well. But I would say a lot of times in Hollywood, we're just sensationalist scoundrels, and those aren't the journalists I know, and that's not me. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, speaking of journalism, you were, um, at the time of the main event of this book, when it happens, you were the bureau chief for AP for Mexico and Central America. I feel like that's a huge deal. I'm not asking you to talk yourself up necessarily, but it was a big deal, right? That's got to be a very difficult job.
1: It was. It was 24-7. I always say that I pulled more all-nighters at the AP than I did in college. But it was honestly the best job I ever had. It was so fascinating. It was nonstop. It was very fast-paced because at that time, my my time as Bureau Chief was um, 2010 to 2015. And that was the time when the drug war, the so-called drug war really ramped up inside of Mexico and there were all kinds of developments practically daily and, and, and worse violence and worse violence and El Chapo was captured and then El Chapo escaped and then El Chapo was captured again. And so it was news nonstop. At the same time, I absolutely loved it. It was the best job I ever had and, it was, and I probably learned more on that job than any other position I've had in my career.
0: Now, when we say bureau chief, does that mean you're kind of making sure everybody's doing what they're doing, getting stuff in on time? Are you still doing the journalism side for yourself as well? Or is it more kind of trying to pull everybody in and checking things off and just making sure that these things are happening the right way?
1: It was very much both. I was the director of news. I had a staff of about 12 in Mexico City that were AP correspondents, official correspondents. And then I had another 20 collaborators around the country. And then I had another uh, six or seven correspondents in Central America. And so basically, I was the person in charge of whatever news came out of that specific region. And so that would mean a lot of coordinating, but reporting as well, and a lot of editing. I did a lot of editing of the stories that came in. I did a lot of coordinating of the coverage. Well, pretty much daily, I did reporting just from my desk, but also went out and did special reports as the bureau chief. So it was a little bit of everything.
0: And now one of the events that happens while you're bureau chief is what this book is about, In the Mouth of the Wolf, about the murder of Regina Martinez. And then when you actually begin your own investigation, but of course that's years later, what I do remember from 2012 is, I re- I remember kind of vaguely when um, Regina was murdered, and you know there was just this kind of perception where it's, as you were just talking about, the cartel was killing everybody. But it seemed like the murder of Regina Martinez hit a different chord down there, where it was just, oh, another journalist has been murdered. There seemed to be a much stronger reaction to Regina's murder. Now, is that just the American up here not knowing what's going on down there, or was it different during that time?
1: It definitely was different. It was a watershed because everyone knew she was not corrupt. And just to back up on that point a little bit, when I was Bureau Chief, and and as I mentioned in the book, the first day I took over the job, from the very first day, this was my topic, not by choice. I just took over at a time when all of a sudden a lot of journalists were getting killed in 2010 when I took over there were 10 that year which was unprecedented at the time this year it's more it's it's about 12 in the first six months but it but that's when it really started getting bad and as I mentioned in the book the AP received a threat so we were covering these cases of journalists being killed but also we had to be and I was in charge of the security for the teams of journalists, reporters, photographers, TV. And so we had to spend a lot of our administrative time on the issue as well, is how do we keep our correspondents safe in covering this country? And so I was dealing with it on two levels basically and i personally covered a lot of these cases it was the news i was covering it was an issue for our correspondents but the problem was that initially these journalists who were killed they seemed to be sort of nameless faceless people because suddenly there were so many and because we were running from one sort of like crisis to another in terms of news coverage and at the time the government would always say that they weren't journalists, that they were actually corrupt. They were in cahoots with the cartels, and that's why they got killed. And so it was an easy way to dispense with the story while we were running to all these other things that were happening that we needed to cover at the same time. And there were never investigations done, and we never really knew if what the government was saying was true. But a lot of people took it at face value. They would say, "Nah, no, nah, they're, they're just corrupt. And even other journalists and other foreign correspondents like ourselves. And so there was never really any deep treatment of what was going on. And there was this narrative by the government. Well, if they get killed, it's because they are doing something wrong. So then she got killed. And so many people knew that she was the real deal. She was a journalist- with ethics, with standards. She was beyond reproach in terms of any kind of bribery, anything like that. She was so well known for that, that when she was murdered, that's what made everybody stop because everyone knew that she didn't fit the narrative. And it made me in particular, but a lot of people stop and say, okay, like what's really going on here. And I think that's why there was such a significant reaction to her murder nationally in Mexico. And it's spilled over right away internationally. Like in the following few days, it was an international story. It was very quick because again, things kept exploding in Mexico, but you're exactly right. That's why more people heard about it And why it really was a a watershed in terms of this new type of violence in Mexico.
0: I mean, it certainly makes sense why you were constantly pulling all-nighters as bureau chief, because as you just said, during this time, you've got to lose a lot of sleep. You have people who are underneath you. I think you said 12 and if they get a tip and they go off in the middle of the night, you don't necessarily know where everybody is. You don't know what situations they're getting into. That's a heck of a lot of stress. I have to think that war on you quite a bit.
1: Well, there there were two things. Sometimes the news, I would just be up all night covering the news. Like I remember the second time Chapo was captured after he dug himself out through a tunnel. I was just checking the news on a Saturday night before I was ready to go to bed. And it was 11 p.m. And I saw that he had been captured. And I basically was, because at the Associated Press, you're feeding the world. And so the whole world wanted that story. It wasn't like we could say, oh, we'll handle it 7 a.m. Um, And so that night I literally was writing and covering a story all night. But you're right. On other occasions, we did make very specific protocols and we did a lot of talking, a lot of advance reporting, a lot of preparation to decide whether a team of journalists could go out into the field. And, you know, if, if they were able to get what we were after and if they were Able to do it as safely as possible. It was kind of a a group conversation. Plus, we had our protocols that we would measure the situation against. But even so, there were times when I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would think about the person out in some dangerous place. And I would just think, did we make the right decision? And fortunately, every time we did, I can say that when uh, my term as bureau chief was up, that was the first thing I was happy to hand over is not have that responsibility anymore because it was very important to me and everyone that everyone stayed safe.
0: Yeah, because of course, Hollywood has told us that you always have one maverick reporter who is just going to go way too far and then just end up somewhere crazy. So I'm glad everybody stayed safe underneath you during that time.
1: Well, you know, that's another Hollywood myth because really, again, in the situation that I was in, I did not want Mavericks. That was the, and and everybody thinks that's what you want. You want the tough reporters going to go there no matter what and get the story. And I did not. And I hired several people while I was there. And I wanted the people who knew the country, who were very level-headed and who wanted to come home at night, because those are the people you really want reporters want to be reporters. They will go out in any kind of risky situation. They want to go out to get the story. But if you're going to let them do that, you have to know that they're going to be level-headed and that they're going to be able to say at some point, no, we got to get out of here. That's really what you want is the person who knows when to say, we got to get out of here. And we were in constant contact, of course, with people out in the field, but you can't be there every, every single minute. And so those were the people I liked and the people I trusted because they knew the country. They knew when things didn't look right or feel right. It's interesting because the message of the editors was always be safe. We didn't want them to feel like by pulling back that somehow was going to be viewed poorly by the AP. It's exactly the opposite. We want them to be safe. And so they're the ones who are always pushing the line and pushing the envelope. And we're the ones telling them, be safe, be safe, be safe. (laughs) Sometimes to the point where they don't want to listen to us. It it was more pulling people back.
0: Well, we are dispelling a lot of Hollywood myths. I'm very excited (laughs) about it. So Regina is murdered. She is murdered in 2012. And you weren't massively involved at this time. But the book is based upon years later, where you decide to kind of dig into it yourself. What was the impetus for that? Because I know you had actually had not a significant amount, but you did have contact with Regina while working. What made you take this case up years later and decide that you wanted to dig into it some more?
1: Well, as I mentioned earlier, for me, she was the first time these murders and these campaigns to silence journalists had a face or had a a more personal connection to me, because I did feel like in these other cases, we always wrote about them in terms of, you know, is this an attack on freedom of expression? You know, are these intimidation tactics? The government says they were crooked. You know, it was it was much more about the wider issue and not about the people. And then, when this happened to someone, not only who I had had contact with, but who I knew was a good journalist. Because the reason I contacted her is that one time she had been a collaborator with the AP. And because there was and is corruption in the Mexican press, which I go into in the book, kind of explain the history and why, we as a U.S. organization really had to vet the people who were working with us as collaborators. And she was on that list. And also the editors inside the AP had told me, even though I hadn't worked with her, that she was really good. So I knew she was legitimate and I had had this contact with her. And so just that combination made me stop and say, I want to do something with this. It was always in my head since it happened.
0: Now, I should say overall, by the time I finished the book, I absolutely loved it. But I was a little bit concerned about traveling to Mexico afterwards. Can you just clarify for me, should I cancel my Tijuana trip or am I okay to still go?
1: I would say yes, go to Tijuana. But to give a little backstory to that, Mexico in so many places is still perfectly fine. (laughs) And you can go somewhere and have a fantastic experience. The problem is that the way, at least the way that drug violence works, it tends to flow around the country depending on the territories where the cartels are fighting the most. And so those territories will be really dangerous, but then that'll taper off and the violence will go somewhere else. And so we always had to be on top of that as well. And Tijuana is one of those places. Tijuana is a fabulous city. Have you been there before? I have not. Okay. Everyone thinks it's like a dirty little border town with, you know, drunks and cheap tequila. and all. It's a beautiful city. It has a great art scene. It has an incredible food scene. You can not have to drive very far to the beach or to the wine country. So you just kind of go with maybe what other people have told you most recently. And honestly, I'm not up on Tijuana and and the violence right now, but you can find out the safe routes to see all of those things. One thing that Mexico is very protective of is its tourism industry. They want you to keep coming. I mean, there was a time 10 years ago when I wouldn't have gone to Tijuana and my daughter, who was a college student, I forbade her to even think about spring break in Mexico. But honestly, I would say it's fine right now.
0: So now, Kathy, we talked about how you wanted safe journalists and this was not manufactured. You can feel it in the writing. You weren't exactly always completely safe. You go to where Regina lived. You go to all these areas. You're talking to people. Did you often feel unsafe as you were digging into Regina's murder? Or does it come with the territory of if you're going to look into something and there's violence that you just got to be on your guard the whole time?
1: Well, that's absolutely true. You do. But you have to make a plan because in this particular case, the story was so sensitive. The case was so sensitive. There are people who will not talk about it to this day. And so knowing that it was that sensitive and knowing that there were clearly forces there that did not want information to get out. And so me as a journalist, if I'm going to go poking around, I have to be very strategic about how I do that. The danger isn't necessarily to me. The danger is to the people who talk to me. And so I have to figure out how to approach them, where to approach them, how to keep them protected if they agree to talk to me. And so that was overwhelmingly the most difficult thing about this book trying to keep myself under the radar so that I could protect the people who were talking to me. And that took a lot of planning and hand-wringing and asking my fellow journalists, you know, how do I handle this? How do I handle that? And that really, really was the most difficult part.
0: I'm thinking specifically of one very specific scenario in the book. I'm not going to go into it, but I mean, you get to a point where a source is starting to get very nervous about something and you're trying to get them on the phone and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you have to even say, what do I say on the phone just in case someone's listening, just in case somebody is in the background trying to figure out what's going on. You had to do a lot of stuff just to make sure that people were safe, including thinking three or four steps ahead of whoever else might be right behind you, not wanting you to get any closer to the truth.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, in, in Mexico, as a journalist, you pretty much assume that landlines, the landlines going into the AP office were going to be monitored. Because that's old Mexico pre-democracy and even democracies in quotes like the state that I wrote about, how the government operated there under the name of a democracy. They were monitoring journalists all the time. And we just assumed that the president's team was also monitoring all international journalists inside of Mexico. And so even with any kind of sensitive information working at the AP, you had to use other means. You had to use other phone lines or encrypted emails. You always had to be mindful of that at the AP. So I guess that was my training and learning how to be mindful of it once I started to go out on my own on this particular project.
0: When you start an investigation like this, is your goal kind of, I figure out who did it or I failed, or is your goal... Just get more information, just move it forward. How do you define success when you're looking into something that has been unsolved basically for 10 years?
1: Well, obviously, you want to solve it. I personally felt that there was so much fear and so much cover up. And especially if I waited some time, if I let some time pass, that I would be able to uncover significant information that if it didn't solve the case, at least would put a different light on what really happened. Like, I just wanted to know what really happened, but not being a formal investigator, I couldn't subpoena people. I couldn't do like a criminal investigation. And I think this is how a lot of reporters work and a lot of reporters work in investigations is, you know, there's stuff out there that nobody's hit yet. And you don't know what it is, but you know, in a case like this, where there was so much pressure to keep people quiet, that chances are it's out there and it's gettable and it will help to debunk the official story. I guess that was what I was after at the least. And then at the most, I wanted to solve the case, of course. And then, as you see in the book, I started to write that story unknowingly at first for an entirely different reason in an entirely different context. And that only added to, for me to the importance of the story.
0: Ultimately, what it really became, at least for me, is it's a very good biography of Regina in and of itself. My favorite part of this book is that by the end of it, I felt like I knew Regina. You had a lot of anecdotes that kind of just Shine a light on who she was and how she worked. Uh, you know, specifically that, you know, she had her friends and she'd go out drinking and then have these long discussions. And then on the weekend, she's like, get the hell away from me. I'm working this weekend. Like, just shuts out the world. And we all know that person who says, this is all great, fun and games, but I'm working now. Get away from me. And it was a lot of these small anecdotes that just kind of really highlighted who Regina was. Was that something intentional for you to do that little by little and show who she was? Or did it just naturally happen as you investigated?
1: Well, I felt that because that case was pretty celebrated or pretty well known, there had been a lot of mythology that grew up around her. And she was a very private person who led a very hermetic life, a lot of it for her own safety. And so for me, that was a real challenge. That was, that was a huge challenge because she didn't like a lot of people to know what was going on in her life outside of journalism. And I really wanted to make her a human being. And I wanted to make her the human being that she was and not the myth. It's one of those things, and especially in Mexico, they have this term among journalists they call protagonismo, where the journalist wants to become the story. And so they said right after she was murdered, a lot of people stood up and talked about what a great friend she was and how close they were and, and lots of stories. And none of them were true. And so I fortunately, as you see, I have this group of friends who told me who she really was. But even beyond that, because she they didn't see her when she went home on the weekend. So it took me an extra step to find the people who were there in those quiet moments. I'm happy to hear that you feel like you know her because that was another really difficult aspect of the book. She didn't want people to know a lot about her.
0: One. Well, then on top of that, you had a few red herrings in there. People who seem like they might have been being straight up with you, and then as you talk to them more, they may seem more and more unreliable. And even certain sources that everyone would say, they're liars, don't listen to them. There's some truth behind everyone you talk to, but you had to be on your guard almost the whole time. Everyone you were talking to, you kind of had to question it, right?
1: Absolutely. And there were so many points in the process where I would be convinced of something and then I would doubt it. This was clearly the hardest work I've ever done. Another difficult aspect was because I was trying to protect the people who I was talking to and who agreed to talk to me, I couldn't tell anyone else where I got my information because I didn't want to blow the cover of a particular source. And so if I knew a detail about her and I wanted to cross reference it, you know, check it with somebody else who knew her, it could have come from a very reliable person who really knew her. And then I would go to another inside person who really knew her. And that person would say, no, no, that can't be true. Even though if they knew who said it, they would go, oh, well, yeah, that's probably true. That person knows. And that's usually how reporting works. It's like you're always trying to cross your information with other people from other arenas to see what matches. Some of the people, if they knew who I was talking to, would say, "Okay, yeah, that person knows. But I couldn't tell them who I was talking to. And so that made it very difficult, too, because somebody I trusted would tell me something. And then another person who I trusted would go, no, nah, that can't be true. <laughs> and so I would get I would have my facts where I felt like I had cross referenced them in the best ways I could, either by other interviews or documents or whatever. And then somebody could just come in and, and, and throw a bomb on it. And so that, again, was very difficult. And that is why I decided to actually make that part of the story, because it does show you the atmosphere and the uncertainty that all these people are living in. And so I felt that was important in terms of me being transparent and also in terms of setting the mood of what it's like to be in a place like I call it a society without truth. And you're trying to find the truth in a place that really doesn't have it.
0: How long could this book be if, A, you weren't a good journalist who's actually cross-checking everything, and if you didn't have to substantiate everything? I mean, is this book like 10 times longer if you don't have to prove everything you were thinking, feeling, or heard from somebody? Or is this pretty tightly like, this is what the book should be, you don't need any more, or more information isn't going to really shine that much more of a light on it?
1: For me, this is the book as it should be. There was so much speculation, but it wouldn't be responsible at all. I don't think on the part of anyone to just put that in. You had asked earlier if I had to leave things out. There were some things I had to leave out. I think there were all along the lines, there were a lot of things I had to leave out because I just couldn't substantiate it. But I felt like I had so much material. And I think, again, one of the hardest parts was making her human. And there were some stories I had about her just as a person that I couldn't put in because I I couldn't substantiate them to my liking. So there were some things like that. But in the end, I thought, you know, I do have a lot of anecdotes. And so I'll just have to go without it.
0: She was a complex person, and I think you build that out very well within the narrative. And as you said, taking away the myth-making, that she wasn't just a sainted crusader and everything she did was wonderful. Um, she was in some very good ways. I believe the term is hardcore. Like, you, were, you weren't you were just going to work with her and dilly-dally and stuff. She wanted stuff done, and she wanted it done her way or, or get out of her way. You know, like you said, it it also makes it so much more complex for someone like you coming in to do this, because you may have somebody who thinks they know her and is telling you what they think is the truth. And there's a part of Regina that I think is still kind of a little bit cloaked in mystery. Like like we talked about, was she working that entire time on the weekends and doing this or were there other things going on? Lord knows, the government wanted everyone to believe that there were other things going on.
1: Yes. And there were people who claimed to know her really well. You've seen them in the book. And I just decided they were lying. I just had to go with what everybody else said and decided that they had other motives for pretending to know her as well as they did. So in some cases, that's how it was. What she was working on, which is a big question in the book, she was very, very protective of her news stories and her sources and whatever projects she had going. And so she was especially protective of that kind of information.
0: And is that normal within journalism, right? Is that journalists are given such leeway that if something like this happened, God forbid, even their editor or somebody may have no idea what that current story was? Or was it normal, at least for you, that you'd at least have an inkling of what somebody's working on on a consistent basis?
1: In the AP, you had an idea what people were working on. And if it was something complicated and dangerous, it involved more people. We wouldn't let somebody do something like that on their own. In the Mexican model at the time, it was quite different because doing that kind of work was a little bit unusual, especially in the outlying states where she was. And so there wasn't really a good model in place for how editors or the home office deal with those kinds of projects. And so the correspondents really were free to kind of just go out on their own and see what they could find out. And she knew she was in a very sensitive situation and a very dangerous situation. And she pretty much had to figure out on her own how to protect herself. And she didn't have a committee or security protocols or all the things we had at the AP. She didn't have any of that. And there are a lot of reporters out in the outlying states. Mexico City obviously is the hub of all the big media and it tends to operate differently here. It's much safer. It, I mean, there's always risk, but it's like the media hub. And so people work for giant newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post or big TV stations. And it's a whole different dynamic. But when you're in a smaller outlying area where there isn't a lot of backup or support, you really have to make your own way. And in some of the other cases that I describe in the book, those reporters were doing the same thing. They were trying to do very dangerous things on their own and to very terrible
0: consequences. You know, this is a true crime book, right? It's an investigation, but, you know, when it's going to get put on the bookshelf, it's going to be called true crime. But unlike most true crime, this isn't about the killer and this is about Regina. How do you think Regina should be remembered? Because based upon your book, I'm just going to say, Regina, don't call me a murder victim. I want to be known as this. What would you say Regina would want to be remembered by after you've done all of this work?
1: I think by her work, because again, you will see when you read the book, what she did was really unique and it took a lot of guts. And she even reveled a little bit in the fact that she could do that and that she was willing to do it and that she could let the criticisms roll off her back. She was a model. I mean, she really was. She she was a model to a lot of journalists for courage, basically, and courage and how the job should be done. All of that was so important to her. I think that's how she would like to be remembered. But it's really interesting to ask that kind of question, because in this whole process, I would never, ever want to speak for her because she was so independent and I feel like she would take offense to me trying to say anything about what she thinks.
0: <laughs> I was thinking, it actually, when I said it, I'm like, you know what, I think Regina would be like, "I try and speak for me, I'll kick your ass. I just feel like I could hear that coming out. It comes through, everything that you wrote about her, you can just picture her, and I'm kind of in my head, I'm like, she wouldn't like this question. She'd be like, she'd shut up, I don't want to hear about this.
1: Well, that's really how I felt, and... This might sound a little strange, but of course I developed a relationship with her in this whole process. And I really felt like she was treating me like she treated everyone else. Like, hey, I'm not giving this up. So, you know, you're the reporter, you figure it out. Like I said, I don't ever want to pretend to speak for her. I also had this imagination of what would have happened if we met in person, And from everything I learned about her, I have this idea of what that would be like because she would have been very polite and very accommodating on a certain level of a foreign journalist coming in or say she had still worked for the AP and and I was the bureau chief. She would be very cordial, hardworking, cooperative. But if I went out to her territory to try to do a story, I'm the competition. And not only am I the competition, I'm the helicoptering foreign journalist trying to slip in and get a quick story and make all the locals do all the work. First of all, that's not how I work, but that's the stereotype. And she would have really kept her distance. She would have, she would have totally kept her distance. I don't feel like she and I would have been buds.
0: (laughs) You would not have been sharing a beer with her under those circumstances. I think so.
1: Exactly. And, and I really like her for that. And I respect her for that because, you know, she had her boundaries and she is who she is and nobody else can speak for her, but herself.
0: So um, history energy United was founded because a lot of people think history is boring and they learned about it in school, and they don't want to talk about it anymore. What would you say to those people if they're like, why should I read In the Mouth of the Wolf?
1: Well, it's, it's very much a cautionary tale, and we haven't touched on this too much, but I think it's an important read for Americans today because it gives you a picture of what happens in a society when you lose the free press. It's not futuristic or speculative. This really happened. And at the center of what happened is this very complicated, interesting character. And I think that people will recognize while they're following the life and death of this particular character, they will recognize a lot of things happening in our own country that I would consider to be warning signs of where this path goes. Where this path goes of calling the press corrupt and fake news and enemies of the people and convincing people not to believe reliable information, this is a picture of the natural course of that path and where it goes and who suffers. And it's not just the journalists who suffer, it's the whole society. And so to me, along with the true crime part, and the really fascinating and brave characters in this book, there's a picture that I think people in the United States will recognize.
0: Well, the book is fantastic, Kathy. I think everybody should read it. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great talk.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: And that's it for this episode, Kathy. Thank you so much for coming on In the Mouth of the Wolf need to get this book as soon as it comes out october 19th go out and get it in the meantime hit us up on social media twitter instagram facebook i'm also on goodreads you can go on there and check some stuff out if you want to until the next time take it easy nerds